We all want to feel like we belong, but sometimes it's challenging to find connection in our living spaces, neighborhoods, communities, and relationships. On Home Where You Belong, we're here to change that. Hear stories of people from different backgrounds and from different places and how they've been able to feel more at home to help give you a renewed sense of connection, belonging, and optimism. Welcome to Home Where You Belong with your host, Chip Alford. When those type of clients come to me and they have a raw piece of land to build their dream house that they've they've saved their whole life for to to build, I take it uh, so seriously that it becomes a spiritual endeavor for me. Despite his unique last name, Lance Sacco isn't crazy, just insanely successful. As co-owner of F9 Productions, one of Colorado's fastest-growing architecture and design firms, Lance's eclectic portfolio includes everything from a tiny house vacation home on wheels to a stunning mountaintop retreat built above 8,000 feet. Not enough to pick your interest? How about office space built with shipping containers or a modern 6,500-square-foot farmhouse with 360-degree views of Colorado's Golden Plains and Rocky Mountains? F9's innovative designs have already earned the firm national and international architecture awards and coverage in media outlets as varied as HGTV, Dwell, and Cosmopolitan. But Lance isn't one to rest on his laurels. He also co-hosts one of the world's top five architecture and business podcasts, teaches part-time at the University of Colorado Boulder, and manages a community garden that's sprouting three new locations and converting into a nonprofit. We're fortunate to have Lance join us today to discuss some of his most unique projects, his firm's commitment to clear communication and quality customer service, and the role architects play in helping people build the home of their dreams. Lance, welcome to Home Where You Belong. Really appreciate you taking some time out to join us today. Chip, it's an honor to be here. I'm really excited for this interview. And it is Lance Psycho. You got it. It it is the it is the absolute perfect uh, icebreaker, and I, I mean seriously, I, it and my kid, I, I try to explain to my children how good of an icebreaker it is. Yeah, are they people, buying that? They, <laughs> I don't know yet. Uh, I, yeah, I, you got to give them time. Give them time. You can make a negative a positive. How many people are named Psycho? I think that's a story of my life is turning negative into positive. Yeah, See? so there you go. Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you're from and and maybe how you got interested in becoming a builder and architect. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, I am from Northwest North Dakota originally. My journey to becoming an architect, builder, and a real estate uh, developer started way back in North Dakota where I tried to work on a farm with my dad one summer. We were sugar beet farmers and I, I hated it. We didn't get along too well. I ended <laughs> up calling his his best friend who's a general contractor and went to work for him. We did 80 roofs that summer. I was his gopher. If anybody doesn't know what that means, that means you go for this, you go for that when you're done going for the stuff. Yep. And he told me I could get on top of the roof and learn how to roof. I loved every minute of being on a construction site even really? though it was comparable, comparably hard work, it just as like it is with farming. Farming is very difficult work too. It's very uh, physically demanding. But the camaraderie, the fact that we could see things uh, get built right away, you know, you see the progress. And then I 
I fell in love with it so much that I would work a different trade every single summer until I was 21. So it minus mechanical electrical plumbing, but I learned all the carpentry trades, went to tech school and then uh, excelled there, graduated at the top of the class. And I realized at the end of, of my short stint at North Dakota State School of Science for building construction tech, that if man, if I could learn how to draw the buildings as well, I, I could really command a lot of work, a lot of income and move towards a, a place of financial security and freedom. So that that's what led me to to where I'm at um, today. I, I have to admit, I have never worked personally with an architect to build uh, a house or any other kind of structure. But I remember I grew up on a farm as well. I think I was about six when we moved into our farm in, in North Alabama. And my dad built a, a nice house up on top of a mountain. Um, you have some really amazing mountaintop retreats I want to talk about later as well. But I remember just looking at the blueprints as a kid and just thinking, wow, how cool is this? This this plan is going to become the, the mm -hmm. house that we live in. And that just kind of stayed with me. Yeah, that's a that's a definitely a spark to just the fuel that that feeds any architect. For for me, that's exactly one of the things for sure. And, and you know, you talk about you mentioned some of those uh, mountaintop houses that we have going on. Uh, East Watch is our most famous house. If everybody heads over to the website and take a look at f9productions.com, and they, or even they just Google East Watch House Colorado, okay. the first couple pages of Google will be filled up with that. So uh, those kind of clients are the ones I was talking about that are every, every client of ours is special, but there's extra special ones for sure. And so when those type of clients come to me and they have a raw piece of land to build their dream house that they've, they've saved their whole life for to, to build, I take it uh, so seriously that it becomes a spiritual endeavor for me. Um, and, and kind of part of the pitch that I make to clients is, um, you know, one of the first things they ask is they say, well, are you going to visit the property? And I say, well, it's a, it's a sin if I don't. It is an actual yeah. sin against the, the earth, just people, everything, God, because uh, you're you're taking what is what was a raw piece of land. And all of a sudden we're going to scar it for a while when during the building process. And so whatever we put there hopefully is designed to last generations, but should really blend with blend at the same time, but also sort of stick out. So it's sort of this delicate balance between, you know, trying to blend with with nature and 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 embrace it, and then also create a sanctuary inside that allows you to experience the nature from from outside. And, and Eastwatch does that does that perfectly. I mean, if you go look at the the views from the interior, they have these amazing, almost three hundred and sixty degree views of the mountains that they reside in. Uh, so, you know, what I, what I end up doing is, uh, making, you know, we sign the contract, end up going on a site visit with them, walking it. And then I am an avid fisherman, a, a professional fisherman on the side. And then what I do is I, uh, you know, I take their space program that I sort of have worked up with them of, you know, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, orientations, what are we looking to do on the site? And I let that marinate in my, in my head, my psyche for at least a couple days. And a lot of that happens when I am, it's just me with a line in the water, anticipating <laughs> a bite on the end. And what happens is, is like through my subconscious, I'm getting a little woo-woo here, but this is where the spirituality comes through is I I can devise, you know, the general layout and, and the direction. And I let that really marinate for like three or four days before I even draw anything. 
And it all kind of comes to me sort of in this culmination at the end and some of these plans that I'll that I'll come up with. Now, obviously, they're not finished at this point, but the direction, it just spills out on paper, usually within like a half hour to an hour after I've had those three days. And the direction, you know, just goes from there. Um, and the clients that are the best, besides having these wonderful sites and, and trusting us as trusted advisors, um, and, and they challenge us too. You know, some of them come to us and say, "This is our dream home. We want it to be iconic. We, you know, we have these these certain ideas and these wishes and these wants." So it's all it all really becomes about serving our fellow mm. man as well. Okay, I want to talk about your portfolio a little bit. Everything from a shipping container house to a tiny house you had featured on HGTV. You had modern farmhouses, mountain residences. You had some affordable housing, some multi-million dollar amazing homes and designs. To, I could go on and on and on. Is that intentional that you want to have an eclectic mix like that? And are there any particular designs that you're especially proud of? Yeah, I'll answer the last question first. So the, the, okay. all, almost all of the ones you described were particularly proud of. I, I would probably note the East Watch House again. What's amazing about that house is that we, we made the cover of Builder Magazine in January of 2021. Huh? And then just the media just exploded. So, you know, we're all over Dwell. We're all over uh, Design Milk, uh, websites like that that are that are popular in that community. And since then, you know, I'm more, I would say I try to be half artist, half business person. I think most architects, a lot of them try to be mostly artists and not so much business person. Not so I, much I, on the business. Yeah. And that's, a, that's a problem in itself. I would lean towards this one. This one is puts us when, when you are the artist, right? The, the idea of becoming a, an artist that is highly sought after is producing some kind of work like that. So when people come to you, they go, that's what I, that's, a, I hired you because I, I need that signature. Like I, it, it, it's an ego. It's literally an ego boost for, for some of these owners. Mm -hmm. And and I totally get that. I mean, I live in my own custom house that my wife and I designed and built. There's an ego about it, right? That like, it's part of the American dream of building your own house from scratch, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so that, that, that project in particular, uh, the, the Eldorado shipping containers project yeah, that was is, cool. <laughs> is that people come to me we get at least uh, one inquiry i would say every quarter to do some kind of shipping container related project a lot of times it's folks that think uh i'm going to save a lot of money and and beat the system the construction system by building with shipping containers and this is where i always have to end up breaking their heart as i say look it, 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 tell me what it's really about is it about is it actually about saving money or, or is it also about the aesthetics of that mm. shipping container? And a lot of times they end up coming back to me and say, well, obviously it's about everybody wants to save money, but yes, we also love the aesthetics. And I go, okay, the truth of the matter is shipping containers are made for shipping. They're not made for building. We can wrangle them into being buildings. Um, but if we're, if we're making them in an exterior application, so a house that's outside, then the amount of extra work that we have to do is comparable to if we didn't use shipping containers at all. And in, in other words, like we still have to build another wall on the inside of the house or on the outside of the house to provide the insulation to, to make all of that work. Sure. And I go, so you're kind of doubling the cost as if we just, if we ended up, you know, building with just sticks, so like just your standard two by fours or two by sixes, more traditional construction that's been around for over a hundred years now. All the trades understand it. It's the most simple way to still build. 
And then we can clad it with something that looks like the shipping container and we can make that happen. But why I'm so proud of the Eldorado project is like that actually I I can point right back to it and say to potential clients, like this is actually the application that is perfect for shipping containers. You put them in the inside, they become a design element. Um, They're sort of prefabricated in a way. You don't have to wrangle them too much, you know, by cutting them open and doing some special engineering um, and, and stuff like that. And then the tiny houses are always a favorite of mine because they're, yeah. they are such a good story. The first one that we build is Atlas, Tiny House Atlas. And uh, we started that project in two, 2010. So right around actually when we were first in business our first year. And that was we when were, they were first kind of breaking out as a... Uh, movement, uh, movement is the yeah, word movement. I use. Tiny House yeah. Movement, yeah. Yeah, that, that's re- exactly. That's when it was sort of born it was born after the great recession um in the midst yeah. of that because you had the giant financial crisis due to overlending by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all of that and what what the reaction it was a reaction by the public to this excess that we had in the 90s of the McMansions and everybody should have a single family home and you should take on all this debt and like the Occupy Wall Street movement was, you know, tied in with all of this of uh, we want no debt. We want to live free. We, you know, we're this is our American dream and we're going to do it in this certain way. So uh, in 2010, what we did is uh, we we were celebrating Alex and I. We got one, one of our first big projects. It was this uh, duplex projects, the golden duplex project. Alex we is to, your is your co-owner or co-founder? Yep. Al Gore okay. is his name. Yep. Okay. So uh, we were we went to Boulder. Um, and went and got burgers and we were celebrating, Hey, we got it. We got this commission. And then on the way drive back, we called one of our friends. His name was Blake and Blake was working for a firm up in South Dakota. He hated his job at the time at, which is crazy. Cause I'm like, Oh man, I wish you had more dialectical thinking because like we're out here struggling with no, almost no clients just trying to make it. Nobody, 50% of the architects were laid off at that time. It, it was a pretty bad financial decision. Not a lot of building going on. Yeah. Not a lot. Yep. And so uh, we asked, we said, well, hey, how's it going, Blake? And, you know, he was dejected and all of this. And I, well, how much money do you got? And he goes, well, why do you ask? I'm like, well, why don't you just quit your job? Like you have no responsibilities right now. You have no child. You have no wife. You have no mortgage. Just you like to photo- you like photography. You like tiny houses. What if you just quit your job, move down here, we'll build a tiny house and then you can travel the travel the United States and take take photos. And he was on board right away. And so Alex, but he, I don't think he, I think he was like half serious. And so Alex and I got home that night. I bought the domain name, blakestinyhouse.com in the morning. We emailed him and said, looks like we're doing it. And he, he, <laughs> he, he went along with it for like three years. <laughs> I know he went along with it for like three years. And the amount of organic attention we got from that website and the designs we were proposing, which were, we were breaking this typical mold that you even saw at the beginning of the tiny house movement of, you know, they're basically cabins on wheels. Yeah, and we we were like, why doesn't it have way more glass? I mean, the whole idea of taking this See trailer where you are, yeah, yeah, the whole idea with taking this trailer into the woods or living off grid is you want to be it almost seamless with the environment and be able to see out and experience that and have the sun wake you up and all that good stuff. So we we designed this huge glass wall. Nobody else had done that at that time in, in the tiny house movement. Um, and we have a fold up deck, a fold down awning. Um, it was a transformer-like tiny house. And so at the end, in 2013, he finally capitulated and said, like, guys, I'm not serious. Like, I'm not going to do this. And I go, we go, okay, no problem. 
But we had such a huge organic following online with this website. TV producers were calling us. We did a couple of scissors with them because then at that point they were looking at trying to make houses, uh, sorry, make a TV, TV shows showing people designing and building these things. Sure. So a year later, my business partner walks into the office after he had went to a home and garden show in Denver with my, uh, with his fiance at the time. And he says, uh, oh, hey, by the way, I, I signed us up. We're going to build this tiny house. And uh, we're going to do it in six weeks and we're going to be HGTV. And I said, what? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and this is sort of part of me and Alex do there. There's we, we have these premonitions about we taking risks like this. And we, we it's analytic, half analytical, half gut. And we end up just kind of jumping and going for it. And I said, well, we don't even have any we don't even have any money. I mean, we were just starting to get the firm like truly off the ground with employees and stuff. And he says, so we, we ended up taking out a fifty thousand dollar loan. And uh, we we designed and built the whole thing um, over the course of, I think, a couple months. Uh, HGTV filmed us. We are on uh, season one, uh, episode 13. If you just look up uh, Alex and Lance's tiny folding house, you can find it. It was a super, it was very stressful, it, but it was completely worth it because, I mean, the advertising that we got because of that, we there's no way we could have paid for it. So we ended up being on... HGTV about every two weeks because they would replay that episode. Uh, we ended up winning an international architecture award for that tiny house with Architizer. And uh, and then the press kind of went all over the place with that. And we ended up getting a call from Subaru and Subaru wanted us to build two more of those. And those are the Titan two houses on the uh, on the on the website there. So so Subaru puts on this thing called a Winterfest. And so that's what these structures they wanted them built for. And when Alex came to me with the proposal and the idea, uh, I said, no. And I was like, Alex, those are so hard. To, the first one was so hard to build. It was mm -hmm. so difficult. We were literally inventing architecture and engineering. I mean, nobody had done these foldable, collapsible, movable structures before. And so I, he said, well, what if I tell them this number? And they go for it. And I go, if, if they go for that number... <laughs> I will convince my wife to let us do it because it's just, it's so taxing building in sure. addition to designing and then building and all this other stuff. And, and they didn't even blink. They just said, yep, you guys are the ones. And it kind of goes back to that seeking out an architect as an artist. It, it, it happens. You want to be in that position for sure, where you're seeked out specifically for these thing, these kind of designs and buildings that you can execute that nobody else can. And so we ended up building it in three, building both of those in three months, super stressful, but it ended up uh, getting us um, for the first time, like some serious profit on our books. And we took that profit and then we bought a third of an acre here in Longmont. And now I'm sitting in the building that we ended up, uh, we ended up building a triplex and a sixplex. That's when we really took the leap to become full fledged architects, builders, and real estate uh, developers. So we, we, we built a, a sixplex and a triplex, nine units in total. Eight of them are condominium style townhomes. And we ended up retaining two of those just as investment properties. And then we also retained uh, the only commercial unit, which I'm sitting in now, which is our office. And it now houses the lower floor houses, our construction company. Middle floor that I'm on right now is our conference room. And then the upper floor is our architecture office. Um, and so that's uh that that maybe kind of brings us to where we're at uh today in terms of um in terms of in terms of what we are and what we do. Wow. That's quite a story. It sounds like sometimes following your intuition and taking risk can be a key to greater success. That's that's a pretty cool story. 
you kind of answered this next question a little bit already in what you just said, but maybe there's something else you might want to add, but how can architects help homeowners? A lot of us, you know, we buy in a, in a residential development from already custom built homes, and maybe we get to choose a few appliances or different finishes, but a lot of people don't work with architects. Mm -hmm. What, what's the value or what can an architect bring to potential homeowners that is a real value that makes that a worthwhile investment? Well, I think the first thing is that architects today who would like to, that really want to serve their fellow man and work with people who maybe have never worked with an architect, they need to figure out themselves first. And they need to okay. figure out how, how they're going to serve the people and, and be able to present it in a clean, concise, and clear way. The way we figured out how we can present what we do cleanly and clearly and concisely to clients to make them just feel comfortable working with with us as architects. Because again, if they've never done it before, how do they even know what the process yeah. is? Sure. So we moved about six or seven years ago from uh, written proposals where it was just a bunch of words. And uh, you know, I had this epiphany. It was like, wait a minute. Our final product is drawings. Our final product are images to help explain how to build this thing that we're designing on whatever various job site there is. Why don't our proposals mimic that? So we we move to this hybrid proposal that clearly defines and explains uh, half of it as photos, uh, images basically of like other projects that we've done. Sure. And then, um, and then there are words that also help explain the process. But we 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 break it down into four phases: schematic design, design development, construction documentation, and permit documentation. And and I just I bring up that proposal to every sales meeting. It doesn't have any numbers filled in on it. I I always explain that look, your every client you every client is special. Every client deserves you know a custom uh, fee associated with their project. There's all kinds of nuances to that. And then I explain our process to them and they get it at the end. And then the cherry on top after that is just providing high quality customer service. One of the biggest reasons why people come to us at F9 Productions in Colorado is because we, we get these complaints from other uh, clients where they say, look, I, I'm, I'm I, sometimes they've even fired there or they're on the verge of firing their other architect and they're like, I can't get this guy or gal to return a call. <laughs> like I'm paying them money. Like why, why aren't they returning my call? And I go, well, that's, if you take a look at our website and you go look at the nine principles, communicate, oh, communicate effectively is one of them. We have a, we have a hard rule at our firm. We have seven architects, including myself and my business partner, Al Gore. And that is if somebody gets, if, if a client who is obviously paying us, or, or, or even if it's an inquiry, we have to get back to them within one hour via text, email, a phone call, any, anything like that. Um, and then in worst case scenario, 24 hours, but that's it. And that alone. And a, a lot of people would say 24 hours is like state of the art or great, right? Yeah. But when I read within an hour, that also almost seems impossible, but that would definitely be a differentiator if you can, if you can live up to that. Yes, sir. E even if it's, uh, I'll give it an example too. If people, if they're listening and they're going, oh my gosh, what if I'm under a deadline? I can't, you can at least, let's say somebody emails you a four paragraph email with like three or four questions uh, and it's a client that's paying you, you can, it's acceptable to just say, uh, Hey Bob, I, I got your email. We're under the gun today. I will get back to you in detail tomorrow. 
then you can still follow up with you know sure. tomorrow in detail when you carve out some time. But at least you've touched them that day. At least they know they've you've acknowledged that they they contacted you, right? Yeah. And yeah. my my experience is people will pay for good customer service. I mean, they'll pay extra if they feel like somebody acknowledges them and is going to be responsive. Yeah, and, and that's and that's the critical point here is that I, I make this to everybody, and I'll, and I'll crap on myself for a little bit here just just to emphasize what I'm getting at, and that is. Lance is an architect. Uh, any any architect can draw a building. It's true. Mm -hmm. Like any architect can draw a building. What is going to separate you from the crowd of the other architects who can draw the pretty buildings? We all have the pretty buildings on our website. Sure. It's customer service. It's yeah. attention to detail. It's attention to to the client. It's communication. It's under promising and then over delivering. And the same thing goes for like an electrician, uh, a birdhouse builder, a plumber. Um, a, a tech guru or something like that. Like you guys can, everybody can, you guys have the skills to perform the work. That's undeniable. You know, obviously there's various, just, there's variations of like, if you're good or if you're really good at that sure. or bad at that, but the separator is going to be a hundred percent how, how you, how you yeah. handle and, and work with your clients. The, the skill is just what gets you in the game, right? It's, yeah. it's extra qualities that kind of take you to the next level. You are a busy guy, just all the stuff you've just told us. But in addition to the things you've told us, you also, uh, I believe you teach part-time at the University of Colorado Boulder. What what do you teach there? Yeah. So I've taught a couple of different courses there since I think 20, yeah, 2013, because that's when we, that's when we got hired. And then that kicked us into, we need to hire other people because now all of a sudden we're spending time at the university, obviously getting paid, but we had to transfer all of that and get that going. So we first started teaching architectural or engineering drawing. Okay. Now Alex teaches that class himself. And the reason we reached out to the university is because uh, we were we were already needing to hire before we got hired at the university. And so we thought, well, we want to hire locally. Why don't we just reach out to CU Boulder, the architecture program over there, see if there's any candidates. We got a flood of we got a flood of people that weren't wanted to, you know, to work with us. But they, their skills, their technical skills in the the CAD suite known as Revit architecture, that's what we use, was lacking. Um, th that university, God bless them, I think it's a great university, but they just didn't have, I think, the right professors in place or teachers, lecturers, whatever you want to call them, to teach this software in the way it's going to be used in practice. Again, architecture school does a great job about teaching design. But when it comes to the technicalities of just executing the work and then also being a business owner or business having any benefits, yeah, it's, it's just lacking. So we we emailed them and said, hey, we would love to hire your your students. But to be honest, they are lacking this this critical skill. And they said, well, it's very interesting that you reached out uh, like today because <laughs> we just had somebody leave and we have this class called engineering drawing and it's literally ways about teaching that course we actually have environmental design students the architecture students cross over into that class and then it seems like you guys would be a good fit so we, we co-taught that for together about seven years um and a couple other classes we taught were like geomatics so we teach them uh how to kind of do some basic uh surveying and, and geomatics with the uh, sites and stuff like that we've taught an architecture studio and now I, what i teach is i teach uh special topics in the environmental design uh department and I, I teach the whole Adobe Creative Suite, so Adobe Photoshop, InDesign, uh, Premiere, and Illustrator. That sounds awesome. One of the things uh, that I focus on sometimes in this podcast is 
community building. You know, it's all about what makes people feel at home. And um, part of that is feeling like they're part of a community. And I noticed in your bio that one of the things you've done is managed a community garden in Longmont in Colorado, um, which I think you either are about to or already have turned into a nonprofit. Can you tell us a little bit about why did you start that and tell us that story? Yeah, when, when I first moved to Colorado in 2008, uh, I lived in an apartment for, for the same apartment for five years. And coming from North Dakota and, and growing up between a cattle ranch and a and a uh, sugar beet farm, my, my family, they we grew our own food. We, we slaughtered our own food and stuff like that, raised our own food. So when I moved here, I was like, oh... I would, it would be really nice if I could garden. Well, if you live in an apartment, you're, there's no opportunities really. Right. Sure. You could put some pots in your um, balcony, but that's <laughs> balcony. About it. Yeah. So uh, I just quick Google search community garden Longmont and found this community garden. It was only in its second year of existence at that time. And at that in 2010, it was uh, under management of growing gardens, a different nonprofit. And so I guard, we got, I got a plot, I gardened there for the first year. And then the second year they made me a, a garden leader. I led that garden uh, up until 2020. And then at that point, growing gardens had grown so many uh, community gardens and, and started them all over Boulder County that they said, you know what, our reach, like, we don't want to control this many gardens. Like we really would, the idea is to bring it back to local control. Sure. And they approached me and said, would you be interested in taking over and starting a nonprofit? And for me, that has always been one of the things I've wanted to do. So I said, I jumped right at it. It was uh, an opportunity that I really wanted since for my whole life was to do some philanthropic um, endeavor. So I, I founded Longmont Community Gardens in 2020. And uh, since then, now we you know take in the revenue. Uh, we rent out plots. We have three different kinds. There are four by eight raised beds. Uh, 10 by 20 half plots, 20 by 20 full plots. And with that, then, you know, we've been able to do some much more bigger improvements because all of a sudden, you know, growing gardens isn't, isn't taking the, the money that we get from renting those plots. Now we have control of that. It's not a lot of money. We only generate like $4,000 a year, but for a community garden, that's pretty huge. We get all kinds of uh, donations and stuff. So now three years later, I am finally able to hopefully step down next week as the garden leader. Mm -hmm. I will still be the president of the community garden and maintain that role. And uh, we also have plans to expand from one location to two more locations. We're going to partner with a uh, local uh, uh, Christian school, and then we're going to partner. Uh, and then the land to the south of us is open and, and vacant, and the city is going to allow us to uh, to lease that from them. They, they, it's basically a free lease. We just have to maintain it and do the own improvements ourselves. Um, but that's where we're headed with with the community garden. At the end of the day, what I really would love is that it's, it, it, hopefully it's a lifetime legacy. After I'm dead and gone, there's many of these gardens that we've helped establish and uh, help people just learn and get back to the roots of creating their food, you know, eating their own food, locally sourcing it. It's just it's just better for everybody, the environment, all, everything above. That must be really rewarding. That sounds like a great story. Yeah, it is 100% rewarding. Yeah, it's one of the, like, I make money all day long on these other companies, but there's something about that that is just special in itself. I want to talk just a couple more things. Um, one, you host or co-host a weekly podcast of your own that kind of looks at 
the inner workings of an architecture firm. I'm assuming your firm, or, or maybe mm-hmm. you talk about other firms too. It's actually one of the top five architecture and business podcasts in the world. Tell us a little bit, why did you start that? And uh, what do you try to accomplish with that uh, outlet? Oh, thank you for that question. We st- So just to give everybody a quick recap of the timeline here. In 2010 is when we started F9 Productions, our architecture firm. And then in 2017, we started Inside the Firm podcast. The reason why that's the, that seven year gap is significant and why I'm, why I bring it up is because as everybody, most, a lot of people have heard this before, but maybe they haven't. And that is the trope is, and it's, it's real. There's statistics behind it is most businesses fail within the first seven years of existence. If you make it to that seventh year, the chances of you failing diminish significantly uh, on, on a timeline. So we made it to year seven. We had employees behind us. We were winning awards. We we had some good press. Um, we had momentum. And uh, it, I wanted to document that journey. And I, and Alex and I have always been big podcast fans. You know, we're of that generation where we just, I mean, I'm on one right now, obviously. And we just thought this is probably the, rather than us writing it all down, like, why don't we just say what happened? So we start if you if you go check out our you know inside the firm podcast.com and you and you go to uh episode zero sure. you i recommend that's where you start from so we every friday what we did what we would do is we we record at 10 a.m typically and then publish later that day but the idea was we wanted to re, you know wind back the clock and talk about what it was like to start the firm we want to bring you inside the firm really lay it all out there without without really naming names and stuff like that, but tell as much as we possibly could without getting ourselves into sort of legal hot water and all of that. We, we talk about, we, we talked about, you know, what it was like to get our first clients, how we got our first clients, how we developed that hybrid proposal that I talked about trials, tribulations, hiring people, firing people, bad clients, good clients, success <laughs> stories, um, how to market yourself, uh, where, you know, how, how to get work, uh, and and so the goal with it was twofold to again document that journey, but then also share it with everybody else who's maybe in our position or about to be in our position, and give them an inside look. Because one of the things about architects uh, that is now dying out, and thank God for Mark LePage who started the Entre Architect Community and uh, website and podcast and movement and everything like that is his group on Facebook has eight thousand. Uh, small firm architects. And the idea is we, we share as much information as we can. You know, we we talk about all that stuff openly. Before any of that existed, there was none of that. It's kind of like best, best practices or ideas, things like that. Yep, exactly. Architects were very, you know, close to the vest type of people because at one point there was way too many architects. Now, now we actually probably need more than that. So with way too many architects and so few clients, you know, why would you share with anybody, right? There's this idea of living in a mindset of scarcity. I'm I'm of a, a mindset of abundance, right? Like one of my favorite Bible verses is Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply. And like the more, the more good you put out there, and if you live with that idea of abundance and that there's plenty of resources for us, sure, we should use them efficiently. We shouldn't be wasteful and everything like that. But that idea of abundance has, has just played through all the way. So we did uh, the Friday. We still do the Friday show. That's our flagship show. But a okay. couple of years ago, what we added was the Monday morning show, which is Monday morning coffee with inside the firm. 
And that's where I interview all kinds of business folks all over the world. Uh, it's about a half hour interview and I, I pick their brain. There's some usual questions that I ask everybody, but at the end of the day, I try to tailor that show to just hearing other people's businesses perspective. Our, the majority of our listenership is still designers, architects, contractors, but we definitely have a large segment of just folks that are interested in the in business, the business environment, uh, entrepreneurship, startups, side hustles, all of that sort of thing. I didn't realize that second part, so I'm definitely going to check out both of them. But that second part sounds really interesting to me as well. As I mentioned earlier, the, the main reason I started this podcast, I've lived in probably, I think, 28 different places now. And uh, so kind of figuring out what makes people feel at home has always interested me. Sometimes it's uh, the place they live, the design they choose, the type of house. Sometimes it's a community. Obviously, sometimes it's the relationships, the family, the people they live with. I'm just curious with you, um, what is it that makes you feel most at home? Oh, wow. That's a that's a tough one. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. Yeah. What makes me feel it, what what makes me I, I have a couple of different ways to answer that, right? So in in business, what makes me feel at home is when anybody trusts us. Anybody even just trusts me. Employee, it could be a sub consultant, it could be a subcontractor, but obviously the biggest one is the clients. So if if there's that level of trust reciprocity there and we're level we're leveling out the expectations of reality. Um, from the beginning, and we we have that established, that I feel at home in business in that way. It, it's just, again, back to, are we just going to tell each other the truth at the end of the day? Um, and then as far as at, at home goes, I, I would say, when I walk in the door, and the dog greets me, and my <laughs> wife says hello, and uh, one of us is one of us is going to get ready to cook, usually, usually it's me at this point. That's what makes me feel most at home. That's awesome. Great answer. Great answer. Well, Lance, thanks so much for taking some time out. This was really interesting. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Lance's work and his architecture firm, uh, you can visit his company's website at f9productions.com. Uh, you can check out the Inside the Firm podcast on YouTube or at insidethefirmpodcast.com or wherever you stream podcasts. I'm including links in the show notes and on our podcast website, homewhereyoubelong.com. Thanks again, Lance, for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Chip. This was wonderful. All right, listeners, thanks again for being with us. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends about us. We want to help you continue experiencing that feeling of being at home wherever you are. So please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit our website at homewhereyoubelong.com. Want to join in on discussions, ask questions, or share feedback and ideas? Join our Facebook group, visit us on Instagram, or send an email to chip at homewhereyoubelong.com. We'll see you next time. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.